The kingdom of God is as multifaceted and mysterious as our creator. A kingdom we only see now through a glass darkly. Though we can't picture it fully, God's kingdom is the story told in scripture, from the garden to the city. And in the middle of the story, God chose to reveal his kingdom in a new way. The gospel is not only Jesus coming and dying to save us from our sins, it's also the story of God establishing his dwelling, dominion, and dynasty in the world. We live as both citizens and strangers, prisoners of hope in this shadow kingdom, all while knowing it's not our true home, that something better is coming, that God's perfect kingdom is coming. Citizens and strangers, I cannot tell you how excited I am for this series. It's been on my heart and my mind ever since we started talking about the New Testament and talking about how we were going to attack this. This has just been in the back of my head, so I'm so excited that we get to preach through this. You can turn in your Bibles. If you don't have one, we're passing some out right now, but you can turn in your Bibles to Genesis 1-1. And some of you are like, Genesis? I thought we were in the New Testament. Yeah. We have been going for two years. This is the start of our third year going through the New Testament, or going through the entire Bible, I'm sorry. We spent two years on the Old Testament, and we are going to finish the entire Bible by this Christmas. Is that hype or what? Three years in the making, this series. How many of you have been here for all, like, two years of, of this ongoing season and have heard kind of all the sermons? You've been here. You've been a part of this. We have a few. We have a few. We, and then plenty of you have joined us along the way. That's so exciting. But, but the reason that we're studying in Genesis 1-1 is because the Bible is a cohesive story. If you've heard me at all, you've heard me say this probably every time I've been up here. I've just tried to impress on you. The Bible is a story that starts in Genesis, ends in Revelation. It's the same story. So even though there's 66 books in here, they're all telling the same story. They're like different chapters in an ongoing story. Everyone's telling kind of a, a little different picture of the story. So, so we have law books, and we have poetry books, and we have narrative books, and we have prophecy, and we have all these different things. But they're combining and coming together to tell us one story about God's plan of redemption. And, and so when Jesus shows up, in the book of Matthew, chapter 1, verse 1. Well, verse 1, it's just talking about Adam. When Jesus shows in the book of Matthew, chapter 1, verse like 30 or something, when we get to his name, when Jesus shows up on the, on the scene preaching and teaching, he doesn't do this in a vacuum. He's preaching and teaching based off of everything that was said from Genesis through Malachi. So th those first 39 books of the Old Testament, those are all what Jesus is basing his preaching off of. He shows up in Mark chapter 1. It, it's not in your notes, but if you, if you go to Mark chapter 1 verse, I think it's like 8 or 9. It's right at the beginning of the gospel of Mark. Jesus says, I come preaching the gospel, repent, and be saved. So, so Jesus hasn't died yet. Jesus hasn't been risen yet. And yet he says, I come preaching the gospel. Everything Jesus preaches is based on something that's already happened. What we're talking about in Citizens and Strangers is we're talking about the kingdom of of God. We're talking about the kingdom of God. We live in the United States. We, we don't live in a kingdom. We live in a democracy. And so when we hear the phrase the kingdom of God, we don't have a good category for a kingdom. 
We live in a world where our leaders are chosen by us, rule by the people. That's what a democracy is. Some, some people tell you we also live in a republic. That's true. Our government is, is structured so that we have rule by elected representatives. In a kingdom, you don't elect a king. The king just gets the throne, and, and he's in charge. Our, our modern definition of a kingdom, we think of a kingdom as a place. So, so we can think of the kingdom of England, right? This is the place where the king and queen of England rule. We can talk about the kingdom of Cambodia, where the king of Cambodia rules. We can talk about the kingdom of Thailand, and I think those are the only three kingdoms left in the world. There might be a couple I've missed. Some of my history majors in the room can correct me and, and tell me I'm wrong afterwards. But, but we think of a kingdom as a place. But, but I want to impress on you what we need to understand, to understand when Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God, he's not talking about a place. The, the biblical definition of a kingdom is the rule of a king. So, so the kingdom is actually the, the king's rule and reign. It's not the place that he rules over. It's the very fact that there is a king, the very fact that he has a rule. That's how we know we're in a kingdom. It's not just a government. It's an entire way of life. So Jesus comes preaching a kingdom. He says, I'm bringing the kingdom of God to earth. And so now, we are no longer part of the kingdom of this world. Scripture says that, that our citizenship actually is in heaven. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, you don't have to turn there or anything, but, but, but Paul writes that we are citizens of heaven. We're, we're, we're no longer citizens of earth, we're citizens of a, of a different kingdom, of a, of a different place. And what that means is that we are strangers here in this world. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, Peter says we're sojourners and exiles, a.k.a. strangers. We are strangers in this world. So that's where we get the, 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 the phrase and the title for the series, Citizens and Strangers. We're citizens of a different kingdom, not of this world, and, and we are strangers in our own world. Throughout the book of Matthew, as we unpack the teachings of Jesus, as we unpack what he's doing in the kingdom, this is what we're going to keep at the forefront of our minds, that we are in a new kingdom, we're no longer in this world, we're in a new one. The kingdom of God is, is uh, kind of described by three different words. If you've been with us for the last year or so, you've probably heard these words come up again and again. The words are dwelling, dominion, and dynasty. These characterize the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is, is characterized by dwelling, dominion, and dynasty. We'll unpack this more. Next week, we'll talk a little bit about, more about those words and how they've appeared through Scripture. But, but dwelling, just quickly, dwelling is the idea of God's presence with God's people, that we were created for, ultimately, the presence of God. And the most satisfying thing in your life is going to be when you find the presence of God, when you walk in the way that, that God desires for your life, when you spend time in God's presence, when, when you are d discipling yourself in the Word and, and, and in prayer, you will find the most fulfillment because you're in the, the dwelling with God. The, the second aspect of the kingdom is dominion, which is the idea of God's people in God's kingdom. That God has not created a spiritual kind of ethereal kingdom that exists somewhere in the clouds, but that the kingdom of God is here and now. And our job as Christians, our job is to bring the kingdom of God into earth. That, that we want to see the kingdom of God inhabit and change every corner of the world. We're going to unpack this in our series, what this looks like to bring kingdom into your school what it looks like to bring the kingdom of God into your family, what it looks like to bring the kingdom of God into our society, into trademark, into our community. Our job is to bring God's dominion. We want to bring the entire world under the rule of God, God's people in God's kingdom. The last word is dynasty. And this is the idea that it's God's people ruling with and for their God. That, that God does not set up a kingdom, and, and, and then we, we are not just citizens, but we are also rulers of this kingdom. 
that, that our job is to rule over the kingdom and, and take dominion over it, and we'll unpack this more tonight. But, but this is, this is if, if I can give you a vision for what this series is and, and a vision for, for what I want you to just have in your mind, I, I want to just pull you up out of everyday life. We get so focused on, on what's right in front of us and, and what's next to us, and, and we can lose track of the fact that there's a bigger story created than just your life. You were not created for you. You were not created for you. You're created for something bigger and something better. And, and this is why living for yourself is not satisfying. Living for temporary pleasure will, 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 never, will never satisfy you. you. You're just trying to get in the next rush, whether it's a win on the sports team or, or a good score at a band or a, a dance competition, good grades and, and, at, or, or the next high, the next party, a, a new relationship or emotional high, sexual encounter. All those things never satisfy. They feel good in the moment, but they don't satisfy because you're created for something bigger than your life. You're created something bigger for just you. You're created for a kingdom. So we get to the book of Genesis, and, and, and we see that what God is doing in Genesis is He's creating His kingdom. This is the kingdom made. I, I've called tonight's message the kingdom made and lost. That God makes a kingdom in the world. And this is just what happens in Genesis 1 through, through 2. The first two chapters of Genesis, the Bible opens with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That, that God created this place. That He didn't create spirituals. He, he created physical Location. He created a physical place, not just some spiritual realm. When we think of heaven and when we think of where God lives and where God dwells and where God wants us to, to, to be minded, maybe you've heard the phrase so spiritually minded that you're no earthly good. I think it's exactly the opposite. So, so, uh, so earthly minded that, you, that you're no spiritually good. That, that, that we, we lose focus on the world around us. God creates a perfect world and a kingdom. He puts kings on, that th on the throne of that kingdom. He, he creates a garden. He creates all these different things. He puts a king on that throne. When, when we look at the creation of man, we see that man is different from the rest of creation. When we're created, we're created unique, specific, and special. We, we go through the list in Genesis 1, and God says, let there be light. Let there be let there be planets, let there be animals, let there be plants, let there be, let there be, let there be. And then, we, and then we get to the creation of man, and God says something different. He says, let us make man in our image. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, it'll be up on the screen. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heaven, and over the livestock, and all over all the earth, and over every creeping thing, that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We, we get this imagery. God says, let us make man. The, the, creation, is a, a, the creation of man is a personal thing. And, and when the Bible says man here, it's not talking about just men or, 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 or males. It's talking about all of mankind and, and all of humanity. God says, let's make humanity in our own image. He looks at the animal and says, let there be a frog. Let there be a dog. Let there be a cat. Let there be a tree. But then he comes to us and he says, let me make this. And, and the idea here is that God is forming and fashioning man. It says he took him out of the dirt and, and made him by hand. You get this idea that, that the creation of humankind is personal. It's, it's something real. It's something different. That you have a different value than the rest of creation. You have a greater value than the dogs and the cats and the earth. As, as cute and, and nice as Fluffy and Fido are, you are more important and you are more valuable than them. 
You were made by the very hand of God. As, as, as much as you love your dog and your cat, you ought to love every human being more because they are more valuable. Even the people that, that irk you and upset you, e- even the people that, that you don't get along with, even the people who are outwardly and, and outright opposed to you, they matter more than your dog does. Humans have a, a unique value. We have this value because we're created in the image of God. This idea of the image of God is an ancient Near East concept. It appears in, in other literature and other writings. And, and the idea here is, is, is that, that w- w- when we read in, in other literature, we see that the pharaohs are made in the image of God. We see that Canaanite kings are made in the image of God. The idea is that someone made in the image of God is a ruler and a king. In, in every culture, they're, they're, they're told that only the kings have the image of God. Only, only the important people are valuable. Only the people in, in the high areas of life can rule. Only the people who, who, who have it all together. But God says everyone is in the image of God. That everyone is a ruler. A- everyone has, has, has kingdom potential and, and has the authority to live as a king in God's kingdom. The, the idea is that mankind is meant to rule on the earth. We are in the image of God, which means we're created as kings and, and queens too. For, for, for the ladies. We're kings and queens in God's kingdom. This is a revolutionary idea that all of mankind is in God's image. Not just one person or not just one group of people, but there is an entire race of kings that God creates. Then God then places man in, in a garden. This is the kingdom that, that God gives to man. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 5, we, we see a description of the garden that God creates for man. When no bush of the field was yet in the land... And no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land. And there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the ground God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And and you can read on later if you'd like. I I won't read the rest of that passage. You can read on and see the descriptions of the garden. This garden is this beautiful place. It's a place of surpassing beauty. It's everything that's good for mankind, everything that's good for the eye and good to the taste is there. We we have trees and and, and livestock and all these different things existing in the garden. This is a kingdom for mankind to rule over and reign over. This is is our place that we're meant to live in in the world. The imagery used here is is also temple imagery. It's the idea that, that Adam is not only a king, Adam's also presented as a priest. He's living in the presence of God, in, in God's place. This person living in God's place, administering over the place where he dwells, and, and ministering to all of creation. It's, it's not a new idea from, from the rest of the world, but, but, but again, it's different because this is something for everyone. All of us have this calling to live in God's presence, it, not just a select few uh, uh, people. You can write this down. Man is created to be king and priest, of God's creation. Man is created to be king and priest of God's creation. We're created to be priest kings, ruling over God's kingdom, living within his presence. This is the calling that that we have 
on our lives. This, this is where we're placed into. This is where we're going to find the most fulfillment. And this is our job for the rest of time. This is what mankind is meant to do on the earth, to rule and reign. In Genesis chapter 1, 28, we get what's called the cultural mandate. God says, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and every other living creature that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw that everything he had made, and behold, it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth Day. This is what, what theologians and, and pastors have called the cultural mandate. That, that man is created as a king, man is created as a priest, and, and then we're given a mandate, we're, we're given a job to do. We're, we're not just meant to live life kind of having fun. God doesn't say, okay, now go just enjoy the trees and have fun. He, he says, fill the earth and subdue it to, 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 to dominate and, and take over the earth. Have dominion is, is the word that comes up again and again. Have dominion over the earth. This is our job. This is what you and I are created for. This is what sin messed up. This is what Jesus came to save. We start here because if we miss this, we're going to misunderstand the rest of the Bible. That when Jesus comes and invites us into the kingdom of God, he's not talking about a spiritual existence in the clouds. That heaven is not a place where we sit on a cloud and play a harp and sing songs all day. Heaven is, heaven is, heaven is work. Heaven is something that, that, that we inhabit day in. It is a physical place. Heaven is real. Heaven is not just this spiritual, ethereal idea, but heaven is a physical location where you and I are, are going to work and have dominion over the world. Th this is what we need to get back to. This is what Christ came to redeem and restore, multiplying humanity, subduing the earth. So, so when we hear salvation in the Bible, salvation is not about me and, and I. Salvation is about we. It's about us getting back into this Eden Salvation is us getting back into the paradise that God created, reclaiming our position and our authority as, as kings over the earth, as priests ministering in God's place and leading the world to God. We're going to unpack this more in the weeks to come. And, and this is why everything that we try to pass off as entertainment is so unfulfilling. We are, in, in our lives, we are entertaining ourselves to death. And we are missing we are missing out on what God has for us. We're supposed to be cultivating our world, redeeming our culture, but we don't because we're busy making TikToks and watching YouTube videos, and so instead, we miss out on what God has for us. Like, like do you see this? Do you see this? We have something bigger. You're not created for you. You're created for something outside of yourself. The more time you spend on this, doing this, the, the less time you're going to spend getting into the world and fulfilling your calling. You're going to live unsatisfied. As long as this is ruling your life, you're going to live unsatisfied. As long as this is what you're living for, as long as you're living for more followers and more likes and, and, and more posts, you're not going to be fulfilled in life and you're going to miss out on what God has for you. You wonder why depression is rising. You wonder why anxiety is skyrocketing. It's because we're missing out on what God has. We're entertaining ourselves to death. We're missing out on the call of God. 
in the garden, we see heaven. We see God's people in God's place with God's presence ruling and reigning with and for him. Heaven is all of us in paradise together. We see dwelling, the, the garden, God's presence here with Adam, with Eve. We're told in Scripture that they would walk with God in the cool of the day, that, that man would spend time in God's presence every day dwelling. We see dominion, the, the earth, God's kingdom, and, and man has given dominion over it. We see dynasty, mankind is set up as this race of kings meant to rule over the world. And, and we see the crescendo and, and the peak here in chapter, chapter 2, verse 25. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They were naked and were not ashamed. Have you ever had that dream? You know, you know the one where you're up giving the presentation in class and, and then you look around and you realize, oh, I'm not wearing clothes and everyone else is staring? Really? You've never had that dream? What the heck? What the heck? You've never had the naked dream? Is that only me? Okay, he's had it. Okay. <laughs> wow. Wow. Okay. Well, for, the, for most people, this is a normal thing. I don't know how none of you ever had this experience. That's weird. Okay, see? See? Some of y'all have. Y'all lying. But, but you know the shame that that feels? Just, just the object of like, what the heck? What am I doing here? Like, how, how did this happen? Mankind lives in, the, in this state naked and unashamed. This is different than, than, than what we experience now and today. But, but it's the idea of total vulnerability before God and one another. To there's nothing hidden. There, there's literally nothing hidden in their life. This is, this is this picture of paradise that, that we have. Man and, man and woman have perfect relationship with one another. There's nothing hidden between them. They have perfect relationship with God. There's nothing hidden there. This, this is a picture of, of paradise, to live naked and unashamed, totally vulnerable before the rest of the world. This is what we're called to. We're called to vulnerability before one another. But, but, but that doesn't happen, right? Because sin has come in the picture. Sin has, has broken this, this perfect kingdom. Sin, sin has broken this paradise. Now we live before the rest of humanity. We live before one another afraid of getting vulnerable. Uh, afraid of, I don't want you to see what's really inside of me. Because if you saw what was really inside of me, you, you wouldn't think as well of me. If you knew what really went on inside my head, we, we, we'd have a different relationship. Sin has, has broken the cosmos. We have an immediate problem. We have rebellion in the kingdom of God. Literally, we're three chapters into the Bible, and, and, and it's broken. The, the kingdom of God has one law. In Genesis 2.15, God says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely eat die. The, the, the kingdom of God has one law, and in this, next, this very next section, we, we see that mankind can't keep that law, that, that, that sin breaks this perfect paradise because man is incapable of, of following laws. This is something that you see inside of yourself every day. I, I know what the speed limit says, and yet I find myself unable to stay under it. 
I, I, I know the rules of society around me, and yet I find myself unable to live within them. I know what, what God's standard is for my life, and yet I find myself incapable of following those standards. I find myself incapable of keeping this law. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, we see that the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. The eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. We see here that man can't keep laws. If, if the only way to get into the kingdom of God is by law-keeping, I'm out. You're out. You, you don't have a chance. It's been three chapters and already we couldn't keep one rule, let alone the, the 613 that, that God lays out in the Old Testament, let alone the much higher and greater standards that Jesus calls his followers to in the New Testament. If the way into the kingdom is law-keeping, I can't do it. I, I'm not capable Mankind isn't capable. Sin is deceptive and destructive. Well, what we see here is, is, is that sin, sin doesn't lie. It distorts the truth. Sin takes the, the truth of God that, that you shouldn't eat of the tree and, and you'll die. And sin takes that to say, no, you won't, you won't actually die. Instead, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. We, what, what we see is that mankind wants to set themselves up as God's. That we're, we're given a kingdom, but, but we're not satisfied with the position we're given. We want to we raise ourselves up higher. We want to take over God's throne. And, and this is the battle that humanity fights all through the ages and that you and I fight today, that we want to be like God. We want to determine what good and evil is. We see this in society, that, that we want to set the standards as a culture of, the, the, the Bible says that this is right and wrong about your sexuality. The Bible says this is right and wrong about marriage. This is right and wrong about how you should treat each other and live in the world. And we want to say, no, we, we don't care what the Bible says. We don't care what God says. We get to decide. And so because everyone else in the world has decided that this is right, th then it's right. Sin deceives and it distorts the truth. And the results of sin are that man is naked and ashamed. Man is naked and ashamed that this perfect paradise is broken. This perfect relationship with God and with one another is broken. And still today we are naked and ashamed before one another because our perfect paradise has been broken. That, that, that while we lived in God's presence, while, while we lived in, in perfect intimacy with one another and with God, that, that no longer happens because of sin. Carry on in, in verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to man and said to him, Where are you? 
And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. I hid myself. And this should break your heart in light of what we just read. That man hears the voice of God coming into the garden, and rather than running to God, he runs from God. He's afraid. Mankind is afraid of the presence of God. This is heartbreaking. That The one thing that he's created for, the one thing he needs more than anything else, the one thing he craves more than anything else is the one thing he wants to hide from and get away from. And this is still true today. That, that when we are confronted with sin in our lives, when we find ourselves in sin, our tendency is to run and hide. We want to run from God when, when the very thing we should do is run to God. Right. That the, the sin has, has distorted even our view and understanding of, of who God is and, and what God wants from us, that God desires relationship, God desires intimacy, and yet we run. We see that Adam stops ruling that, that he, 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 he no longer lives in God's presence. He, he no longer, and, and now he no longer lives with this dominion or dynasty. He stops being a ruler. In, in verse 11, he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you not eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me. And I Eight. We, we see that Adam stops ruling. A ruler takes responsibility. A ruler takes responsibility. The, 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 the most often, the most common thing that a good ruler or a good leader will say is, you're right, that's my fault. More than, more than anything else. And if you aspire to be a leader, if you aspire to have people respect you and look up to you, that is the number one phrase that you can say over and over again. And I guarantee you, hardly anything will earn you more respect than taking responsibility for your mistakes and your failures. If you're, it, it doesn't matter how many mistakes you make. I, I've lived this. Listen, I make a mistake probably every day, probably multiple times a day. Like, I, I'm a man of mistakes. But if you can live, and this is what I, I want to strive to do better in my life, if you can live taking ownership for your mistakes, people care less about how many mistakes you make and they care more about how you act when you make a mistake. This is just, this is just truth. If you can own your mistakes and say, I'm going to strive to do better, uh, and, and I'm, gonna, I'm just going to own it, that's going to get you way more grace than trying to hide. That's going to get you way more grace than trying to cover up and trying to say, well, no, actually, see, what had happened was if, if they hadn't come in or, or if, if so-and-so hadn't done such and such, no, just own it. Just own it. A ruler takes responsibility. But rather than taking responsibility, Adam shifts blame to Eve. Eve shifts blame to, to the serpent. We see that mankind has abdicated the throne. They've abandoned their calling. And what follows is a list of curses and judgments in chapter 3, verse 14 through 19. We don't have time to read it now. You can read it on your own. We can't unpack all of it. But the big picture is sin messed everything up. Sin messed and, and messes and is still messing everything up. That, that this paradise that God created has been broken. The kingdom has been lost. The kingdom has been lost. Sin has, has ruined and broken the cosmos. And now we live in the effects of of that sin. Sin doesn't occur in a vacuum. Your sin doesn't affect just you. Your sin affects everyone around you. Your sin affects the, the entire world in, in, in some way. Sin breaks everything and ruins everything. And one sin that Adam commits affects all of humanity. 
We don't have time to, to jump into all the theological implications, but because of Adam's sin, we are sinners, and we are broken, and we are incapable of living rightly before God. And yet, in the middle of our sin, we see, that we see that God is a promise maker and a promise keeper and that God is pursuing humanity in the midst of sin. A.W. Tozier has said, well, the most important thing about a man is what he thinks about God. We need to understand that God is loving towards sinful people, that God pursues sinners. God runs after them and, and chases them down. When God comes into the garden, he doesn't come with a stick. He comes calling, Adam, where are you? What happened? We see that immediately God invites man out of shame and into confession. The most powerful weapon in your life against sin is confession. The most powerful thing, if you want to kill sin in your life, you confess that sin to God, you confess that sin to one another. The most powerful weapon that we have against sin is confession. Confession breaks the power of shame. Confession breaks the power uh, of sin's hold in our lives. We, we often feel like, man, if, if, if you knew it was inside of me, this is again, we live naked and ashamed because of sin. And God is inviting us back into naked and unashamed, inviting us into total vulnerability. And we as trademark, this is what we want to strive to be a place where we can confess our sins to one another and recognize that we're not going to be met with judgment. We're going to be met with love. We're going to be met with concern. We're going to be met with care. We're also going to be met with accountability. If you confess sin to, to, to your leaders here, to, to, to hopefully mature Christians here, our response should not be shame on you. Our response is shame off you. I love you. I, I understand that you're struggling. Let me help you. You don't just get, get to confess sin and, and have no change. You, you don't just get to, we, we, we don't revel or rejoice in our sin. We, we, we don't say just to get it off our chest and then keep moving on. It's, it's not like a booth with a cloth, but, but rather we're saying, hey, I, I'm, I'm struggling. I'm, I'm having a problem. I'm having a hard time. And, and we want to surround you and say, let me help you change. Let me help you out of that. This is what God does. God draws Adam out of darkness and into light. God clothes Adam and covers his nakedness. In verse 21, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. That the first thing God does is covers their nakedness. He covers their shame. You can write this down. God covers our nakedness. God does not seek to reveal our shame to the rest of the world. God does not seek to shame us or embarrass us. God seeks to love us and call us into repentance and right relationship. Verse 22, the story goes on. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. And then I don't know what, what your Bible looks like. Mine, it just stops, and it's like a little dash. It's the idea that it, it's unthinkable how bad this could be if man were to, to live in a sinful state and live forever. There's nothing worse than eternal life in a sinful state. And so we see here God's grace. In verse 23, 
lest he live forever. Therefore, the Lord God set him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. There is nothing worse than eternal existence in the presence of sin. Nothing will, nothing will ruin your life more or break your life more. And God looks at this and says, this is so heartbreaking. Man in a sinful state, that, that, that it's a grace of God to not let them live forever. It's a grace of God to say, hey, we need to do something different because this is not going to work. This is the grace of God, that, that God calls man out of darkness and into light. He calls him out of shame and into confession. He covers his nakedness, but God doesn't just leave man covered. God, God wants to see man restored and redeemed. When God brings his judgments in, in chapter 3, 14 through 19, these are all the judgments that God brings on the earth, God brings on man, God brings on the land, all these different places. He also gives a promise. In verse 15, he says, I will put enmity, he says this to the serpent, I will put enmity, that means, that means strife and, and fighting and, and kind of bad relationship between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In, in, in the middle of judgment, God gives a promise of grace. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is what we've called the, the proto-evangelicum for my Southwest Bible College students or the first gospel. You can, you can think of it that way. You don't have to think of the fun Latin term. The first gospel. This is the first mention of Jesus, the first promise of a redeemer and of redemption that, that God doesn't just cover the nakedness of man and then leave them in their sin but covered, but he says, I want to bring redemption and, and, and I want to restore you to where you were. And, and so now we have a promise of restoration, that, that the kingdom is going to be restored, that one day someone is coming who's going to break this curse. He's going to bruise the head of the serpent. We see that Adam, the first man made in the image of God, a priest king who lost God's kingdom. But someone else is coming. Someone else, the very son of God who comes. A man who is the image of God himself. He comes as a king and a priest and he comes to restore his kingdom. This man is Jesus. Jesus is promised. Jesus comes to restore the kingdom. When Jesus shows up on the scene in the book of Matthew and he starts teaching and preaching, this is what he's teaching and preaching. He's saying, hey, the kingdom of God, where you once were in that garden with paradise, when you were in my presence, when you ruled, this is what I want you to get back to. And so for the next, I think it's eight or nine weeks that we're in this series, this is what we're talking about. This is, this is what we're going towards, getting back to paradise, getting back to kingdom, getting back to ruling and reigning. I, I believe and I think that this series is going to be one of the most impactful series that we have preached. I, I believe that this series, if you, if you come every week and if you engage and, and lean into what God is saying in Scripture, you, you, you will see a bigger vision for life. You will see a bigger vision for yourself. You, you, you'll, I think you can find your calling for life in this series. I, I'm, I, I'm not even exaggerating or hyperbolizing that, that what, what God has to say about restoring the kingdom is so big when it comes to, to our future and, and what our life is, is going to be. So, so here just I'll end with a couple practical implications. Christ has come into the world. He's brought his kingdom and he is calling you out of shame 
and, and, and into the joy of confession and repentance. Christ has come to call you out of darkness and into light. He's, called, he, he's come to call you out of sin. And I want to invite you, Christian, if you are struggling in some sin in your life, God is inviting you into confession and into repentance. He is inviting you to lay your sin bare before God. There's also an invitation to do something else that's maybe a little more scary, but God has invited you into confession with one another. That, that part of brotherly Christian love, part of growing in intimacy with one another is that we confess our sins to one another. This is a call that Christ has for you, and he's inviting you into this. And, and, and I, as one of your leaders, and we as, as your leaders at Trademark are inviting you into confession to say, come lay your sin bare before God and before us, and you're not going to be met with shame. You're, you're not going to be met with accusation. You're going to be met with, man, I'm sorry, that, that's tough. Let me help you. Right. Those of you in the room who, who have been through this process, you, 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 you know what this is like, that we want to help you grow. We want to help you become all that God has called you to be, that God has called you to something bigger than living in sin and living in shame and, and worrying about the next time you're going to get found out. You're invited to take back your role as king and priest in the world. You are invited to, to make earth like heaven and lead people into the presence of God. This is what we have for us. This is what we're walking into. This is where we're going. Edenizing the rest of creation, making all of the earth into the image of God. Over the next few weeks, we're going to unpack the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to unpack the Beatitudes. We're going to unpack Jesus' teachings. Jesus comes as a king into the world, and he lays down the, the new way of living. He lays down the, the new way of life in his kingdom. We're going to unpack what that looks like and, and what that's going to look like in, in your life for your friends, it, what it's going to look like in, you, in your school, with your classmates, what it's going to look like in your family, with your parents and your siblings. And so I, I want you to come back for all those weeks because I don't want you to miss any of what God has for you and, and, and any of, of what God says. Let's pray together. And, and I want to invite you into confession before God and with one another. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that, that, that you have come not bringing shame, but bringing love. You've come bringing light into our darkness, that you shed light on sin, not to embarrass us, but, but to love us into repentance. Lord, Lord, I pray for every person in this room that you would call us out of darkness and into light, that you would call to every heart in this place, to, to every broken and hidden place, that we would come to you. We, we would come into your presence. You've invited us. You've pursued us. You are calling softly and tenderly in the garden, inviting us back. I pray we would answer that call. Lord, Lord, I pray that we would understand the call that you've put on our lives to live as, kingdom, as kings and priests in your kingdom, that you've called us to something bigger than ourselves. I pray you'd wake us up out of the mundane, that you'd wake us up out of just the day-to-day -day living, you'd wake us up and pull us out of ourselves but that we would focus on the, on the world around us and we'd see the calling that we have to make the rest of the world into your kingdom. We would lead people towards your kingdom. We ask all these things in your beautiful and holy name. Amen. Jesus, Jesus you, are you are better, better than, anything than anything in this world. In this world. Go and be blessed. I love you guys. Corn dogs are out there. Get as many as you'd like. Don't fear the